Today on Legalese, we are going to be talking about that one time Thomas Jefferson acted like a true tyrant, and Chief Justice John Marshall acted as a true hero in the cause of individual liberty and due process. That's right, we're talking about the trial of Aaron Burr. And if you think you know what crime he was being charged with, you might be surprised. Hey, greetings. Welcome back to Legalese. Uh, this is a podcast where we mostly uh, discuss current events in law, politics, and culture. Uh, today, we're going to be doing uh, a segment for the show that I haven't done in a very long time. I'm pretty excited about it, actually. I've only done it a few times before. It's something I call Today in Founders History. Now, before we get into all of this, let me first remind you guys real quick. Uh, if you like the show, you can find us on a number of different platforms. Uh, there's a video version on Rumble, YouTube, Odyssey, and Spotify. You can find the audio-only version on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and some others. Uh, if you want to join the brand new Legalese community I just started over on Locals.com, you can go do that. And you can do all of those awesome things and read a bunch of articles that I have written, mostly on issues of constitutional law, if you go over to Substack. Uh, there are links to all of those sites down in the video description. Check it out. Now, let me set the scene here a little bit before we get into the specifics of the trial itself. Um, now, if you've been following this show for some time, you've probably picked up on a few personal biases that I have uh, about some of the people we're going to be talking about today. Uh, one of them is a bias I have very much in favor of uh, the founder of the Democratic Republican Party, uh, Thomas Jefferson. And you may have also reasonably concluded a very strong dislike that I have for uh, the Federalists generally, uh, but especially I have—I really do have a special uh, contempt for the person who I consider to be something of the true champion of the Federalist Party. And I know what you're thinking, but no, I don't consider it to be George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, or John Adams. I consider it to be Chief Justice John Marshall. Now, in a certain sense, I do have a great respect for Chief, Chief Justice John Marshall in some regards. For one thing, he was really Jefferson's greatest foe, I guess you could say. I, I know many people really like to see John Adams as Jefferson's great rival, I, but I see it is without question our fourth chief justice and Jefferson's second cousin, John Marshall. Yeah, they were family. That shouldn't be surprising when you consider that back in that time, pretty much everybody from Virginia was related to either the Fairfaxes or the Lees by blood or marriage, but that's not really important. Now, the point is that Really, from the very day of Jefferson's inauguration on March 4th of 1801, as Jefferson took the oath of office being administered to him by none other than Chief Justice Marshall, these two men were sitting there looking at each other, each convinced that the other one was an existential threat to the survival of constitutional government and the Republic itself. And John Marshall was without question... Jefferson's most worthy adversary. He was the Moriarty to his homes. And it's, it's this aspect of him 
that I think makes the ruling in, in a case like Marbury versus Madison so impressive. It's not, as many people believe, an important case because John Marshall created judicial review out of thin air. That's bullshit. I discussed that a lot on the show in the past. I, I think the best one, if you want to go back uh, to my uh, Brutus versus Publius uh, episodes, uh, we talk about how judicial review was a universally recognized outcome of the Cases and Controversies Clause of Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution. The brilliance of Marbury v. Madison was the way that Marshall crafted the opinion in such a way that when one looks at the primary holding, as Marshall admonishes the Jefferson administration for withholding a commission for the justice of the peace from William Marbury as an improper action, but says, unfortunately... The court doesn't have original jurisdiction to issue a writ of mandamus, and we can therefore not compel James Madison, the Secretary of State, to hand over this commission to Marbury. Now, when you hear that, it sounds like, and at the time, it sounded to everyone like a clear win for Thomas Jefferson and the Jefferson administration. Marbury wanted the Jefferson administration to hand over his commission, and the court said no. That sure sounds like a win for Jefferson to virtually everybody, except Thomas Jefferson, who was smart enough to realize that what had happened was he had been punished, publicly admonished as illegally withholding this commission. The court had asserted its power over the executive branch to comply with a dictate of the court, but he managed to weasel his way out of having to admit the real reason he didn't want to rule in Marbury's favor is he knew Jefferson would not comply with the order, he could not compel him, and thus the court would look completely impotent. It was an incredibly clever move that, uh, it's it just, it, unfortunately to this day, it's, it's so unfortunate to hear so many constitutional scholars or lawyers talk about how this is such a brilliant case because it invented judicial review out of thin air. It's just, it's ridiculous and it's not true. Now, and they say it as though just making shit up and saying it's in the Constitution when it's not is a good thing or something. As though this is like some admirable quality that Marshall had. You know, that's a terrible thing. Um, but... Anyways, let's get to the Aaron Burr trial, huh? Now, the reason this section is called, or, or this episode, uh, is part of a series I call Today in Founders History, uh, is because it was today, May 22nd, in 1807, that Aaron Burr was charged with a felony, but it's probably not the one you assume. I'm sure the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that is he was tried for the murder of Alexander Hamilton. But no, for whatever reason, uh, the karmic courts of justice understood that there was absolutely nothing wrong with killing someone when that person is Alexander Hamilton. And as such, Burr never faced legal repercussions for that. Now, it did destroy his political career. And this destruction of his political career was actually the first step in what would be a several-year-long misadventure that would culminate in Aaron Burr being tried in 1807 for the trial we are about to talk about for the crime of treason.
Now, never has an American trial produced such an impressive set of key players. Of course, first of all, we have the defendant, Aaron Burr, founding father, vice president, and slayer of Alexander Hamilton in their famous duel three years earlier. Talk about a man doing service to his country. Then, of course, we have the trial judge, Chief Justice John Marshall, fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and arguably the most important Supreme Court justice in history. Of course, we have the force behind the prosecution, Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, and then President of the United States. We then have Aaron Burr's defense attorneys, which consisted of Edmund Randolph, Luther Martin, who were both delegates to the Constitutional Convention, and one of the most prominent men of their day, Charles Lee. And for the prosecution, we had the district attorney, George Hay. Now, just to give you some idea of what Burr was up against in this trial, um, we have a quote here from James Monroe to James Madison where he says, I consider Burr to be a man shunned, an unprincipled adventurer. So he really had a lot stacked against him. There was a lot of very powerful people that wanted to take this guy down. And in 1807, this case was tried before the federal court for the Circuit of Virginia. And this was of fundamental significance to issues of government power and individual rights in America. Uh, now, this case uh, is formally known as the United States versus Aaron Burr. The charge against Burr, as I have said, was treason. And this charge had been brought on the urging of the president himself. But at stake, however, was much more than Burr's guilt or innocence. And that's what makes this trial so interesting. The trial of Aaron Burr turned on a vital question, and that is, to what extent can the judicial process, and to what extent will it, protect an individual who is being prosecuted by his own government? Or to put it more plainly, what is supreme, the will of the government or the law? Now, in the first decades of the 19th century, Two of the great men who dominated the political scene in America and clashed over this question were obviously John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson. Now, these guys had clashed before many times, personally as well as politically, and of supreme importance to Thomas Jefferson was always the will of the people, as expressed by the voice of their elected government. Even the Constitution and the judiciary, Jefferson would say, must bow to that. On the other hand, of supreme importance to John Marshall in turn was always the law, as enshrined in the principles in the Constitution. Nothing was superior to it until changed by amendment. It controlled presidents and legislators alike. And both men believed profoundly in these tenets which they fought for. So consequently, 
the trial of Aaron Burr was also a trial of these men's most sincere convictions. So what is the Burr conspiracy that led to this trial? Now, during this troubled time, at the end of President Jefferson's first term, Aaron Burr had stepped down as vice president and began preparations for a military exposition that was either, depending on which view one solicits, a treasonous or patriotic adventure. At its core, however, the Burr conspiracy clearly was about conquest and adventure. Now, the Burr conspiracy had its origins in a series of discussions over the winter of 1804 and 1805 between Burr and his long-standing friend, General James Wilkinson. Now, these two men had served together in the Quebec campaign of 1775 and 1776. Over the years, they had often corresponded in a cipher invented by Wilkinson. And Wilkinson himself was an intriguer of the First Order, if that's a word, intriguer, intriguer of the First Order, who had formerly been the head of a party in the West that had favored a separation of the Western states from the Atlantic states. Now, Burr left Washington uh, for a tour of the West in March of 1805. His first stop was in Philadelphia, where he met with Anthony Mary, the British minister to the United States. On April 29th of 1805, Burr reached Pittsburgh, where he had planned to meet up with General Wilkinson, the new governor of the just-organized Louisiana Territory, but Wilkinson had been delayed. So, Burr left a letter for him and set off down the Ohio River in a specially prepared boat that he referred to as his Ark. Now, in early May, Burr reached Blennerhassett's Island a 300-acre piece of land in the Mississippi River. The island belonged to an Irish gentleman named Harmon Blennerhassett. Now, Blennerhassett invited Burr to dinner. The conversation that ensued lasted well into the evening and would forever link Blennerhassett's island with the Burr conspiracy. Now, the precise nature of the conversation is not known, but some inkling may be gleaned from a letter sent by Blennerhassett later that year to Burr, in which he said, I should be honored in being associated with you in any contemplated enterprise you would permit me to participate in. Viewing the probability of a rupture with Spain, I am disposed in the confidential spirit of this letter to offer you and my friends and my own services in any contemplated measures to which you may embark. Now, Burr loved New Orleans, and he had wanted to settle there, although he said that were it not for his daughter, and her boy, he absolutely would have. But he enjoyed his time very much in New Orleans. And part of what he did was use that time to gauge public opinion concerning Mexico and discussing possible enterprises with persons sympathetic to a Mexican insurrection. 
Now, Burr left New Orleans in late July of 1805, and he began a four-month tour that included another meeting with General Wilkinson in St. Louis. And it was at this time, according to Wilkinson's later uh, and probably self-serving report he wrote, that he said he had begun to suspect Burr of treasonous intentions. He quoted Burr as denouncing the imbecility of the government and that the people of the Western country were ready for revolt. Wilkinson claimed to have responded to Burr's interpretation of Western sentiments by questioning him, saying, Surely, no person was ever more mistaken. The Western people disaffected by the government? They are bigoted to Jefferson and democracy, he asked in a disbelieving manner. Now, Burr's long Western sojourn finally came to an end with his arrival back in Washington in October. And over the winter of 1806, Burr met frequently with disaffected military leaders such as Commodore Truxton and General James Eaton, urging that he, they join him in his Western adventure. Now, he sent letters to supporters he had identified on his Western trip, and he enlisted the full support of his beloved daughter Theodosius, Theodosia. Now, Burr made one very fatal mistake of this point, and that was in expressing his plans to Colonel Daniel Morgan, a true hero of the Revolutionary War, if ever there was one. Furthermore, Morgan was a patriot of the highest order, who found Burr's proposal shocking. Morgan wrote a letter to President Jefferson summarizing his conversation with Burr, setting in motion the administration's effort that would eventually put an end to Burr's dreams to lead to his arrest and his eventual trial for treason. Now, by the end of August, Burr found himself back on Blennerhassett's Island, making final preparations for his expedition. He had contracted to purchase 15 boats capable of holding 500 men each and a large keelboat for transporting provisions. Burr had also bought a one, or excuse me, a 300,000-acre tract of land on the Washita River, an area known as the Bastrop Land. And in his efforts to recruit volunteers for his expedition, Burr had promised them shares in his Washita tract. But it was around this time that the Burr conspiracy was defeated. Now, certainly by this time, if not earlier, General Wilkinson had decided to abandon this conspiracy when in early October, a ciphered letter sent by Burr and borne by his trusted aide, Samuel Swartzhouse, whose name you should keep in mind for later in this episode, uh, reached General Wilkinson in New Orleans. Now, Wilkinson determined to squash Burr's plans. He rushed troops to the Mississippi Valley and ordered troops in New Orleans to be on alert for attack. Now, Burr's ciphered letter, decoded by Wilkinson, together with one from his co-conspirator, Jonathan Dayton, who was a former senator 
from Ohio and had been a delegate to the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. These letters were both sent to President Jefferson. Upon receiving them, Jefferson sent a confidential agent of the State Department, uh, a clerk named Graham, to investigate the Burr plot. Graham managed to deceive Harmon Blennerhassett into believing that he was a fellow Burr conspirator. He uncovered important details concerning Burr's plans. The next morning, the militia reached Blennerhassett Island only to find it empty. At this point, Burr was in Nashville, at which point he learned that federal authorities were out to crush his plans, and on November 22nd, he beat a hurried retreat down the Cumberland River. Now, all the Burr detachments met up at the falls of the Ohio. And addressing his recruits, Burr told them that he had intended, at this point, to describe their specific objective, but that circumstances had caused him to defer doing so. Instead, the flotilla would head down the Mississippi, where Burr, who was still ignorant of Wilkinson's betrayal of the plan, expected military backing. But only upon reaching Bayou Pierre, 30 miles north of Natchez, did Burr learn that Wilkinson had turned from co-conspirator into a pursuer. Burr wrote a public letter declaring the innocence of his intentions. Now, a military detachment of 30 men caught up with Burr on the west bank of the Mississippi. Burr was handed a letter from the governor of Mississippi demanding his surrender. Burr responded to the letter by denouncing Wilkinson for his perfidious conduct and for completely frustrating his projects, as Burr put it. Now, the next day, Burr met with the governor, who convinced him to surrender and allow himself to be conducted to the nearby town of Washington, where a grand jury, after listening to the evidence against Burr, declared Burr not guilty of any crime or misdemeanor against the United States. And in fact, the jury went on to condemn the arrest, suggesting that it had been it had given cause to the enemies of our glorious Constitution to rejoice. In fact, Burr demanded his release, and he received it. He disguised himself as a boatman, and he disappeared into the wilderness on the eastern side of the Mississippi. Now, once additional information about Burr's activities became known, a new warrant was issued for his arrest. At this time, Burr was taken to Fort Stoddard for two weeks and then conducted by a nine-man military guard on a 1,000-mile horseback trip to Richmond, Virginia, where he would stand trial for treason. And here we get to the actual trial of Aaron Burr. So, Burr arrived on March 26th of 1807 in Richmond, Virginia. He was lodged under guard at the Eagle Hotel. Four days later, he was brought to another room in the hotel for an examination before the judge who would conduct the trial. Now, this judge was none other than Chief Justice John Marshall. Now, this examination began with District Attorney George Hay 
the son-in-law of future President James Monroe, supporting the government's motion for commitment on charges of treason and high misdemeanors. Hay argued that the evidence showed that Burr intended to take New Orleans by force and make it the capital of his new Western Empire. And replying for Burr was his defense attorney, Edmund Randolph, who was the former attorney general and secretary of state under President Washington. And Randolph argued that Burr had committed no overt act of treason. At this point, Burr himself addressed the court. He offered an innocent interpretation of his own actions and emphasized his acquittal by a grand jury in the Mississippi Territory. He complained bitterly about his recent treatment, telling Marshall that he had been denied the use of ink and paper and not even permitted to write to his daughter. Now, on April 1st, Chief Justice Marshall delivered his opinion on the government's motion. Marshall concluded that the prosecution had failed to produce sufficient evidence of treason. He scheduled Burr for trial on the high misdemeanor charge and set bail at $10,000. Marshall's refusal to insert the treason charge enraged President Jefferson, who suspected that the Chief Justice's judgment was warped in favor of Burr purely because of his own dislike of Jefferson and the Jefferson administration. And now we need to spend a minute talking about what is treason? Because you may be surprised to learn, the question isn't nearly as clear-cut as you might think, at least in this case. Now, the most obvious answer would be to turn to the Constitution, Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1, where it says, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in hearing to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason, unless upon the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. Now, the word treason, as transmitted to the English language from Latin through French, means giving or delivering up. And the common law understood treason as a treachery or breach of faith, it was therefore a crime committed between parties who enjoyed an established relationship of trust mutual, and mutual benefit. Now, there's a variation under common law known as petite treason. This referred to a wife's killing of her husband or a servant or ecclesiastic's killing of his lord or master. Furthermore, there is the more well-known high treason, which involved a breach between subject and sovereign, a betrayal of or a neglect of duty or renunciation of allegiance to, in word or deed, a sovereign to whom a subject owed allegiance by birth or residence. Now, some of the greatest jurists of the time, including Sir Edward Coke, the Baron de Montesquieu, Sir Matthew Hale, and Sir William Blackstone considered treason the highest of all crimes and declared that it must be precisely defined to, defined to prevent its abuse by government authorities. In England, commencing during the reign of Edward III, Parliament narrowed the definition of treason but later widened it according to political exigencies. Now, the laws of the American colonies 
reflected the initial broad outlines of the common law of England, both as to the breadth of the offense and the severity of the punishment, though sometimes the definition of treason in the colonies was even broader than the definition in England. Now, by the 18th century, laws began more consistently to reflect the English law of treason and eventually during the revolutionary period came to require an even more precise definition with more exacting standards of proof and more lenient punishment. During the revolution, many states adopted language recommended by the Continental Congress and its Committee on Spies, which defined treason as adherence to the King of Great Britain, including accepting commissions from him or other enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Now, reflecting the American founders' concern with protecting individual rights and their fear of arbitrary government power, the framers of the Constitution had sought a precise and permanent definition of treason, the permissible means of proving it, and the limitations of punishment for it. Now, the drafters of the Constitution had reached back, as had the Continental Congress actually, to the language of the Statue of Treason under Edward III from 1351 under the Common Law, which limited treason, among other things, to compassing or imagining the death of the king, levying war against the king, or adhering to the king's enemies, giving them aid and comfort. But the framers' definition was even narrower than this, as they did not include that beginning language about compassing or imagining, which had been the basis of the English doctrine of what is known as constructive treason, uh, and this is the judicial extension of the statutory definition of the crime of treason. And this was an effective and easily abused method for dealing with political opponents, which is why they had rejected it in the Constitutional Convention. Thus, in the Constitution, treason consists only in levying war against the United States or adhering to its enemies, giving them aid and comfort. It may be proved only by confession in open court or on the testimony of no fewer than two witnesses to the same overt act. Now, the debates in the Constitutional Convention show an awareness of English common law and of legislative history. We see this because James Madison suggested that the proper definition reported by the Committee of Detail, which limited treason to the levying of war and adherence to enemies, was imprudently narrow and would effectively disallow the wisdom of experience. On the other hand, delegates such as John Dickinson argued in favor of an even more narrow wording. In the end, the phrase, giving them aid and comfort was added to restrict even further the definition of the crime and evidentiary requirements were tightened by the abolition of the phrase by excuse me by the addition of the phrase overt act furthermore 
as is written by James Wilson in his noted 1791 Lectures on the Law. Treason requires generalized grievances and aims against the United States or its government as a whole, rather than particularized, essentially private grievances or aims, respecting the federal nature of the Union, the constitutional definition leaves open the possibility of concurrent state laws for treason against them in their respective sovereign capacities. When it came time to defend the Constitution, Madison had left behind his earlier aversion to a narrow definition of treason, and in Federalist 43, he lauded the Convention's wisdom as raising a constitutional bar to, quote, new fangled and artificial treasons, which he understood as the result and instrument of faction. And for limiting the consequences of guilt. And in Federalist 84, Alexander Hamilton mentions the definition of treason as one of the guarantors of rights that made a separate Bill of Rights unnecessary. Now, in private, District Attorney George Hay had expressed his concerns to the President that Aaron Burr had not been present and there was therefore no overt act of war actually committed by Burr. Now, Jefferson insisted that according to the law, anyone connected to a treasonous act, even if they don't take part directly in the levying of war, are all equally guilty. As you can see, Jefferson has clearly spelled out his desire to use the definition of treason found in the English common law as though that should be supreme to the definition provided by the Constitution. Keep in mind, the definition of treason was so important that it is the only crime legally defined anywhere in the Constitution. The framers were making a point. They were clearly delineating what would be considered treason in the United States. And Ray Charles could see through Stevie Wonder's eyes that what Thomas Jefferson was trying to pull here was, at best, corrupt and vindictive. That Jefferson insisted on this broad definition of English common law to me smacks of this great statement, statesman, acting out of a personal and political motivation to persecute Burr rather than merely prosecute, caused by nothing more than a personal vendetta he had against Burr for his actions during the election of 1800. Now before the 12th Amendment, the president and vice president were actually chosen quite differently. I've talked about this in past videos on the Electoral College if you want to go back and watch those, um, but... It was very different to how it is now, and instead of casting one vote for the president and vice president as a pair, each elector casts two votes. And the person with the highest number of votes was president, and the person with the second highest became vice president. Now, in short, before the 
actual ballots were cast, there had been an agreement between the Democratic Republicans that they would all vote for Jefferson, and all of them except one would vote for Burr, thus making Jefferson president and Burr his vice president. However, the electors fucked up, and for some reason, no one withheld a vote for Burr, and they ended up with a tie. And rather than Burr voluntarily deferring to the original agreement to be Thomas Jefferson's vice president, he decided to press his claim and get a runoff election in the House to try and give him the presidency and relegating Jefferson to the vice president. However, Alexander Hamilton convinced his fellow Federalists in the House that if we were stuck with a Democratic Republican, it must be Jefferson, whom Hamilton did hate, but Hamilton recognized that at least Jefferson was a man with principles, while he considered Burr to be an underhanded, politicking, say-anything-to-win kind of politician. Now, this made Burr a pariah to both his own party and the Federalists, and this really sunk his career. Now, as far as Jefferson uh, pressing this claim of common law treason, he was relying on a Supreme Court ruling in a case known as, two cases actually, known as Ex parte Bullman and Ex parte Schwarzhaus. Now, do you remember the name of Aaron Burr's trusted assistant I asked you to remember early in the show? It, it was Schwarzhaus. Th this is who we're talking about here. He's one of the two parties who is being tried here. Uh, and these are ex parte hearings uh, for the crime of treason. And the ruling of the court, according to John Marshall in these cases, quote, all who levy war against the United States, whether present or absent, all those who are in league with the conspiracy, whether at the scene of the assembly or performing some mundane, minute, or inconsiderable portion of it a thousand miles from the scene of the action, all incur equally the sentence of the law. So Jefferson was of the opinion that since the Chief Justice had provided in ex parte Bowman and ex parte Schwarzhouse the rope to hang Burr, that the prosecution should take full advantage of that. Now, Bowman and Schwarzhouse were the men who were tasked with carrying the letter from Burr to General Wilkinson, and this is what the case hinged upon. Wilkinson, because of their delivery of Burr's letter, had these men arrested for treason. And upon arrival, they had appealed to the Supreme Court with a writ of habeas corpus, which said that they had not been accused of committing any crime there in the District of Columbia and therefore could not be held there for trial. Now, the court agreed and is holding free the two men, but in Marshall's obiter dictum, he appeared to define treason in terms of the English common law's constructive treason, rather than what is known as direct treason, which is indicative of the constitutional definition of Article 3, Section 3. And 
On the basis of documents turned over to the courts by the president and on the personal testimony of General James Wilkinson, as well as uh, Aaron Burr, on June 23, 1807, he was indicted for treason. A week later, he was committed to a penitentiary outside of Richmond. Now, his fate hinged on the important question, a question of vital importance, to the very future of politics and public life in America. How was the crime of treason to be defined, and how was it to be proven? Now, there are two conflicting answers provided. On the one hand, we have the English common law and the Constitution on the other. So, as we've explained, under English common law, the crime of treason was rather loosely defined. Moreover, all members of a treasonable assembly, whether they participated in an actual act of treason or not, were equally guilty. The Constitution, on the other hand, said only an overt act of war against the United States is considered treason. Furthermore, we have the more exacting standards of proof needing two witnesses to the same overt act or confession in open court. Now, Aaron Burr, the indictment charged, levied war against the United States on Blennerhassett's Island in westernmost Virginia. There, the charge read, a body of armed men had assembled in accordance with his plans. Aaron Burr had not himself been physically present on the island at the time. So under the circumstances, was he guilty by association as stipulated by the English law, or was he innocent because, as the Constitution required, he had not personally levied war? Obviously, Jefferson's own view of Burr's actions is best revealed uh, in his letter of 1807. He saw that Burr's first enterprise was to have been the seizure of New Orleans, which would place him at the door of Mexico. His plan, according to Jefferson, had included separating the western states from us, of adding Mexico to them, and of placing himself at their head. The Burr conspiracy, Jefferson concluded, was one of the most malicious of which history will ever furnish an example. According to Jefferson, Burr abandoned his original plan to separate the western states of the United States only because he very early saw that the fidelity of the western country was not to be shaken, and as a result, he turned himself wholly to Mexico. Now, shortly after noon... On May 22, 1807, the trial of Aaron Burr opened in Richmond. Now on the bench sat Chief Justice Marshall and Virginia District Judge Cyrus Griffin. Surrounding Burr was his team of defense lawyers, which included Edmund Randolph, Charles Lee, and Luther Martin, uh, who were former delegates to the Constitutional Convention, uh, these three men were considered uh, during the time of this trial as the ferocites of the law, which is just sort of a term of respect and affection. And addition, 
in addition to this, uh, Burr himself was a very, very accomplished lawyer, and he would actually play a major role in this trial, even handling some of the cross-examination and the witnesses' prosecutions against himself. Now, the prosecution, on the other hand, was mainly handled by then-District Attorney George Hay. Now, while a grand jury awaited the arrival of General Wilkinson from New Orleans, Chief Justice Marshall considered both prosecution and defense motions. The prosecution, noting that, quote, the evidence is different now, unquote, again moved for commitment of Burr on the charge of treason. The defense countered by arguing that to establish the crime of treason, the prosecution must prove that an overt act of treason had been committed by the defendant in a war and that under the Constitution, the overt act must be testified to by two witnesses and must have occurred in the district of the trial. At this point, Marshall sided with the defense's narrow interpretation of treason and the prosecution knew they had their back against the wall. Now, Marshall also weighed a defense motion for what is known as a subpoena duces tecum. Now, this is a writ requiring the named party to appear in court and show why a judgment should not be executed or some other action taken based on a matter of judicial or public record. What was so uh, shocking and unexpected about this particular subpoena duces tecum was it was directed to none other than President Thomas Jefferson, requiring him to turn over certain letters from Wilkinson that might be helpful to the defense and calling him to come testify personally in open court. Now, for this subpoena, Luther Martin argued the motion and he declared, the president has undertaken to prejudice my client by declaring, quote, of his guilt there can be no doubt, end quote. It, Jefferson did say that in a speech to Congress. Now, Randolph, uh, excuse me, Luther Martin went on saying, quote, he has assumed the knowledge of the supreme being himself and pretend to search the heart of my highly respected friend. He has proclaimed him a traitor. He has let slip the dogs of war, the hellhounds of prosecution, to hunt down my friend. And would this president of the United States, who has raised all this absurd clamor, pretend to keep back the papers which are wanted for this trial where life itself is at stake? It is a sacred principle that in all such cases, the accused has the right to all evidence which may be necessary for his case, and though it didn't say it's in there, also to face his accusers. Now, what Luther Martin is talking about here is referring to several key pieces of evidence. The first being a special address made by Jefferson to Congress immediately following Burr's arrest. 
Now, even if we take the most charitable view of Jefferson's actions in doing this and presume he fully believes Burr's action amounted to a treasonous act and that Jefferson's very personal animosity towards Burr for Burr's action during the contested election of 1800 were entirely irrelevant to Jefferson's remonstrance of Burr that was immediately reprinted in every single newspaper in the country that for the president to very publicly declare to the entire nation that any individual had committed a crime as, in, as treacherous as high treason and to have already declared him guilty beyond doubt before the individual in question had even been indicted, much less tried for their crime in a court of law, much less found guilty for that crime by a jury is an absolute violation of due process of the law. And in my humble opinion, when the president does it, it's nothing short of tyrannical. Now, as I had said, the motion also requested the president appear in court as a material witness for the defense to answer to the public allegations from the president, and it also requested the original copies of Burr's letters to General Wilkinson and General Eaton and that they be submitted as material evidence for the defense. The government's case hinged almost entirely on the content of those letters. Now, on June 13th, Marshall ruled that a subpoena to the president might issue, while Marshall recognized that urgent circumstances might prevent the president from complying with the subpoena, the court, he said, had no choice but to issue it. Now, Jefferson never turned over the requested letters. Marshall, having no real alternative, quietly let the matter drop. Jefferson stated his position on this matter in a letter to the prosecutor, George Hay, where he said, The leading feature of our Constitution is the independence of the legislative, executive, and judiciary of each other, and none are more jealous of this than the judiciary. But would the executive be independent of the judiciary if he were subject to the commands of the latter and to imprisonment for disobedience? If the smaller courts could bandy him from pillar to post, keep him constantly trudging from north to south and east to west, and withdraw him entirely from his executive duties. On June 15th, General Wilkinson had arrived in Virginia to appear before the grand jury, and the defense had described General Wilkinson as the alpha and omega of the present prosecution, so his testimony was vital, it, almost everything that the case uh, stood on. Now, Wilkins' testimony did have its intended effect because on June 24th, the grand jury reported indictments against Burr for treason and high misdemeanors. Two days later, Burr pleaded not guilty to the charges, and the court adjourned until August 3rd.
and the hall of the Virginia House of Delegates, the site of the trial, was filled to capacity for the opening of the prosecution's case in the Burr trial. Prosecutor George Hay told the jury of 12 men that the evidence would show that Burr had a treasonable design and that he assembled men for the purpose of furthering his treasonous aim. Now, the prosecution called as its first witness General William Eaton. Eaton testified to a conversation that he had had uh, with Burr in Washington somewhere around the winter of 1805 to 1806. Eaton testified that I listened to Colonel Burr's mode of indemnity, and as I had by this time begun to suspect that the military expedition he had on foot was unlawful, I permitted him to believe myself resigned to his influence, that I might understand the extent and motive of his arrangements. Colonel Burr now laid open his project of revolutionizing the territory territory west of the Allegheny, establishing an independent empire there, with New Orleans to be the capital and he himself to be the chief, organizing a military force on the waters of the Mississippi and carrying his conquest on to Mexico. Now, other prosecution witnesses also testified to Burr's ambitious plans. Commodore Truxton said that Burr had intended to attack Veracruz and Mexico, give liberty to an enslaved world, and establish an independent government in Mexico. And numerous witnesses were called to testify concerning the events uh, in December of 1806 on Blennerhassis Island, the prosecution's one overt act of treason on which it pinned its case. And District Attorney Hay questioned William Love about what he saw on the night of December 10th. So Hay asked, how many boats were at the island to which William Love responds, four? Mr. Hay says, and how many men? Love responds, I cannot tell you, but I suppose about betwixt 20 and 25 belonging to Colonel Tyler's boats, where I arrived on the island and Blennerhassett met me. Hay asked, did you see any arms? William Love responded, I saw the men and rifles. I know that Mr. Blennerhassett took away with him one brace of horse pistols, a brace of pocket pistols, and a dirk. Some fuses were put in the boat, but not more than three or four, all belonging to him. Hay asked, and what arms had Tyler's men? Love responded, pistols, dirks, and rifles they brought there, but all were not armed with rifles. I know not whether they were armed with different things. On August 20th, Burr interrupted the prosecution's case to ask the court to further uh, to arrest further prosecution testimony on the grounds that the evidence had utterly failed to provide 
any overt act of war that had been committed, and that he was shown to have been 100 miles distant from Blennerhassett's Island at the time, and the overt, this was the overt act that they were charging to have taken place. Now, several days of arguments on Burr's motion were to follow, and in the end, it took Marshall three hours to read his lengthy opinion. When he finished, he had swept away the prosecution's case. Marshall ruled that Burr could not be found to have committed treason based on the evidence at Blennerhassett's Island. He said if those who perpetrated the fact be not traitors, he who advised them, being Burr, cannot be a traitor. Marshall stated that we would exclude testimony relevant to the conduct or declarations of the prisoner elsewhere and subsequent to the transaction on Blennerhassett's Island. Marshall's decision ended the prosecution's case, and on September 1st, the case was sent to the jury, and they really had little choice. Nonetheless, the jury hinted that they might have decided the case differently, but for the court's instructions, and what they found was that we, the jury, say that Aaron Burr is not proved to be guilty under this indictment by any evidence submitted to us, we therefore find him not guilty. And in the wake of this trial, President Jefferson would fume over Marshall's ruling. He said, It now appears we have no law but the will of the judge. Now he contemplated responses ranging from proposing a constitutional amendment limiting the power of the judiciary to asking Congress to impeach the chief justice. And years later, when he heard news of the Texas Revolution, Burr exclaimed to a friend with satisfaction, quote, There, you see, I was right. I was only 30 years too soon. What was treason in me 30 years ago is patriotism now. Well, that is going to do it for me here today. Thank you all so much for joining me here on Legalese to talk about the trial of Aaron Burr. Now, just uh, if I could ask you guys, if you dig the show, uh, take a moment and hit that little thumbsy up button down there. I, I, I guess if you hated the show, you can hit that thumbsy downy button too. Uh, I won't hold it against you much. Uh, and please do uh, leave a comment letting me know what you think about this. Where do you think the right side of this issue was? Was it with Jefferson? Was it with Marshall? Was it with Burr? Uh, let me know what you think. I would really love to get your guys' thoughts and feedback on this. Of course, uh, take a moment to subscribe to the channel and hit that little bell notification dealy thingy so you always know uh, when my newest episodes come out. 
And if you want to support the show, uh, you can either leave one-time tips through uh, PayPal, PayPal, Venmo, or Anchor. Or you can become a supporting member for as little as two bucks a month over on the brand new uh, Legalese community page on Locals.com. And if you're not able to support the show uh, in that sense right now, that is perfectly all right. I understand, and I do still very much appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same. Uh, And that goes for whether you are a first-time viewer or a long-time subscriber. And there is one thing you could do for me to support the show for absolutely free, and that is to, first of all, take this episode uh, and share it across all of your favorite social media platforms. And also, if you would take a minute and just think of one or two people you know who you think may find this content interesting, and before you turn the video off and close down the browser tab and get on with your day. If you would just take a second to think of that person or two and to quickly get in touch with them, send them an email, send them a text, hit them up on social media, uh, and just send them uh, a link to the show. Uh, Let them know that you think this is something that they might enjoy uh, watching. And if you guys would do that for me, I would be very, very grateful. So this has been Bob for legalese, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.